Well, I love Sundays. Um, in the Giltcher home, we call them Sunday Fun Day. Um, not because there aren't some Sundays that are unbelievably hectic, but uh, our motive in that is because for my wife and I, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is a reminder that Christ has conquered the grave, that our hope is in Him. And you think about Sunday mornings, I mean, there's nothing that looks particularly significant about what we're about to do here. There's one room and some people in it, and there's one guy up front, and, and I'll have a podium in front of me and some paper from which I'm going to preach, and a Bible, and on the surface, that doesn't look like anything particularly significant. And yet, at the same time, if we really think about what's happening here, and in churches all across the world, this is profoundly significant. See, what we're doing, this is just a microscopic part of what God is doing in human history. This is a part of the Great Commission. The stakes are so high. And I want you to feel that as, as you hear the word preached. This is the living God speaking to us directly to our souls, and he wants to edify and shape and build up his church. So it is a, such a privilege to be united in Christ together with you. And for whatever reason, I especially feel keenly like I need God's help more than ever, so uh, I'm going to pray one more time, and, and then we'll begin. Oh, Lord, we are a people of weakness. We are a people, oh Lord, who are constantly feel fatigued and wearied, and, and we need your help in this moment, Lord. We need ears to hear. We need eyes to see. We need awakened hearts, O oh Lord. We need uh, attentive spirits, O oh Lord. I pray that you would grip us with a great urgency, O oh Lord, of what it means to belong to you, what it means to be a part of the Great Commission, what it means to be a part of, of this mission, O oh Lord, to which you have called us when we got saved. Oh Lord, I pray that you would uh, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word this morning, that you would incline our heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. I pray that your word would be like gold, like much fine gold and sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And Lord, certainly there are many burdens and, and wearied and tired people in this room. And I ask not just that they would stay awake, but more than that, O oh Lord, that their souls would be refreshed and encouraged. So Lord, help me to preach, O oh Lord, uh, as if this were the last message I would ever preach and that this would be the last message they would ever hear because that very well might be the case. So Lord, we thank you for this time together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the thing about women is, how's that for a way to begin a sermon? <laughs> the thing about women is that they have more value and significance than the feminist movement has ever even dreamed. See, whatever value feminism claims to put on women, it does not even compare at all to what the Bible says women are designed by God to be and do. It doesn't compare. Not even close, not, not by a long shot. And at this point, someone could reply and they could say, well, okay, that's, that's fine, but, but feminism stands for the equality of men and women, right? I mean, I mean, that's, I mean that, that has certainly changed things for the better. Wouldn't you agree? To which I would reply, I totally agree. The equality of men and women is a fantastic thing. The only problem is uh, women being equal to men is not a feminist idea. That's a Christian idea. 
They hijacked that from us and then claimed it as their own as if they came up with something profound. We have verses for this. The Apostle Paul said the exact same thing 2,000 years before the feminist movement ever even came into existence. Because see, here's the thing. When God created male and female, he embedded within them an object lesson, a parable, as it were, of his very plan of redemption. You see, men are to reflect the strength and love and self-sacrifice of Christ. Women, on the other hand, are, are to reflect the character and the grace and the beauty of the bride he redeemed with his blood. I mean, ultimately, you understand that womanhood exists to display the very masterpiece of the plan of salvation itself. You can't get any higher than that. You can't get more significant than that. You have to understand, no one holds women and femininity higher in higher esteem than the very God who created them. Why? Because womanhood, you understand, is at the very center of God's purposes for human history. Don't you see, God did not have to do male and female, but he did do that. He did do that, and he did that because men and women, manhood and womanhood, masculinity and femininity make different but equally significant contributions to the Great Commission. And speaking of women making significance to the Great Commission, that is exactly what we see in Paul's letter to Titus. And as you know, the thing about Paul's letter to Titus is that what it is is the blueprints for a healthy church. In other words, if you want this church to be a recovery room for ransom sinners and recovering idolaters, if you want this church to be a launch site for global ministry, a global outpost of joy in a world of despair, if you want this church to be a healthy church that changes the world, and I know you do, then Titus is the raw materials with which you do that. And although there are lots of things that you need to have a healthy church, one of the components you need is when men and women, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, young and old, fulfill their God-ordained roles in the church. And believe it or not, each one of your particular callings, what God is calling each one of you to be in this galactic mission called the Great Commission is all found in Paul's letter to Titus. I mean, I'm telling you, we get this chapter right and we will begin to become what we all want this church to become, namely a launch site for global ministry, an epicenter for seismic impact, or as we say every single week, we will be a healthy church that changes the world. Because here's the thing, I, I personally love big churches, I love big churches and I love programs and I love flash and pizzazz and bells and whistles. I love all those things. But you see, the problem is those things in and of themselves don't create a healthy church. Now, they help organize and structure a healthy church, but they don't create a healthy church. But this does. What's in this chapter? What's in this letter? Simple and basic and obvious and strategic and powerful and explosive. Because what's in this chapter is a personalized game plan for how each particular group of people in this church can live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission. 
And two weeks ago, we saw group number one, which was older men. Last week, we saw group number two, which was older women. And this morning, we get to group number three, which is the younger women in this church, 40-ish and below. Because guess what? You are in the text. Which means Christ has something for you. Because you have to understand, to be a woman in Christ does not make you a different kind of Christian. It makes you a different kind of woman. A Christ-exalting, God-centered, Bible-saturated woman who can make an impact for the Great Commission beyond what you've ever even imagined. And so, younger women, older women who are called to teach them and everybody else, Let's look at Titus 2. Let's see exactly what that is. So you may have notes this morning. Here's our roadmap. Here's where we're headed. I want you to see from this text seven virtues of womanhood. Seven virtues of womanhood taught by older women to the younger so that the word of God would be exalted and displayed. I know that's kind of a mouthful, but that's the best way I can do it because you can see Paul's talking, uh, that is what's in the text, but seven virtues of womanhood taught by older women to the younger so that the word of God would be exalted and displayed. So the first virtue of womanhood is this, number one, Young women must be taught to love their husbands. Young women must be taught to love their husbands. Now, when I say that, when I say that young women must be taught to love their husbands, I'm referring to the fact that Paul wants older women in the church to intentionally and faithfully invest the word of God into the lives of the younger women in the church and in this church in particular. Because look what Paul says in verse 3. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not enslaved to much wine. Here it is, to be teachers of what is good. Do you see that? Teachers. Paul's personalized game plan for how all older women in the church can make an impact for the Great Commission, how they can maximize their effectiveness for the Great Commission is by being teachers in the local church. And yet the question is, who exactly are they supposed to teach? And what exactly are they supposed to teach them? Well, look at verses four and five. Older women are to be teachers of what is good. Why? For what purpose? To what end? Verse four. In order that they should instruct the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sober-minded, to be pure, to be workers at home, to be kind, to be submissive to their own husbands. Why? In order that the word of God should not be reviled. So do you see, older women, your mission, should you choose to accept it, and I hope you do because the health of the church depends upon it, but your mission is to be teachers and trainers and disciplers of the young women in this church and help them be all that God is calling them to be and do in Christ. That's called ministry. That's called discipleship. That's how the Great Commission operates. That's how you become a healthy church that changes the world. And yet the question is, what exactly are women to be and do in Christ? And you can see it in the text. The first issue on the list is that younger women must be taught by older women 
to love their husbands. To love their husbands. Which is really funny to me because you wouldn't think, you wouldn't think that younger women would have to be taught to love their husbands. You wouldn't think that because they're newlyweds. They just got married. They already do love one another. I mean, look at them. They're so cute. They're so sweet. They're holding hands. They should be teaching us how to love. But the reality is they do need to be taught that. And vice versa. And the, and, and the very fact that they do have to be taught that has some pretty profound implications and you can feel them. You see, if young wives have to be taught to love their husbands, it means that whatever authentic love in marriage is, it is not natural or obtainable on our own, but that it requires supernatural power that we don't inherently possess. We have to be taught how to do this. And so older women, part of your calling from the God of the universe is to come alongside young women and to help them love their husbands in such a way that puts Jesus Christ on display. That is a profound ministry. And yet the question is, what does it mean for a wife to love her husband? What does that mean? And and, and furthermore, how do you teach someone to love their husband? What do you give them? What do you teach them? What, What kinds of things do you say to them? Well, let's start with the definition. To love, for a wife to love her husband means, get this, that her mission is to do whatever it takes, even at great cost to herself, to give her husband what is best. Which raises the question, well, what is best? And what's best for him is Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, for a wife to love her husband means that she does whatever it takes, even at great cost to herself, to help her husband prize Jesus Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. That is love. Which, believe it or not, is not super complex. You see, if you're married, ladies, your your husband has all sorts of needs and deficiencies and, and struggles and weaknesses and every single one of those things can only ultimately be fulfilled by Christ himself. And so your agenda, ladies, is to mediate and display whatever it is about Christ that your husband needs at any particular moment. Your job is to make tangible for him the most glorious and beautiful and satisfying person in the universe. That is love. And if that's true, if that's true, that that true love is actually to give your husband Christ, well, sometimes that means he needs encouragement. Sometimes that means physical affection. Sometimes that means service or sacrifice or dying to self, and even sometimes it means correction and warning and even rebuke. And if you did this, it changes everything about the marriage relationship, doesn't it? It changes everything. Because it means that your fundamental aim, wives, is not ultimately his happiness but his happiness in Christ. Your aim is not merely to get him to love and serve you more, but to love and serve Christ more. And yet in so loving and serving Christ more, he will love and serve you better than ever. You see, this is the supernatural logic of love that changes everything. 
And it kind of reminds me of my big fat Greek wedding. Remember that? I'm not recommending that you watch that, but it is funny nevertheless. And at one point in the movie, the, the mom is giving the daughter advice about marriage before the wedding. And she says, Tula, the husband is the head, but the wife is the neck that turns the head wherever she pleases. Okay, well, all right, the movie's kind of ridiculous, but, but I'll say this, there is some truth to that. There is some truth to that. Because if you want your husband, ladies, if you want him to love you and serve you and lead you in a way that brings unbelievable blessing to your soul, this kind of love is the neck that turns the head. And so older ladies in this church, my faculty, my female faculty in this church, the question is, how do you teach the young women to love their husbands? How do you do that? What could you give them? What could you, what could you supply? What could you provide? What could you teach them that would help, their, help them love their husbands in a way that puts Christ on display? Well, for starters, you can give them the three A's. If you're looking for a place to start, you can give them the three A's. A number one, older women help them be astonished. Help them be astonished, and by that I mean the power to love highly imperfect and deficient men starts first with them being astonished with the eternal, undeserved, unconditional love of Christ for their own soul. It begins with that. You see, when you are astonished by the love of Christ for you, when they are astonished by the love of Christ for them, then and only then will they have the power to love highly imperfect husbands. A number two, older women, you need to help them acquire, acquire, and actually more accurately, help them remember what was acquired for them by the death of Christ. You see, old women, you need to teach the younger women to always be looking to the cross, to always be looking to the death of Christ, because here's the thing about the death of Christ. There, Christ did not only or merely purchase a free pass out of hell, although he did do that. No, also with his death, he supplied everything to do that God commands, the power to do all that he commands. And so, Ladies, you need to help them look to the cross to get the power they need to love their husbands with radical affection. A, number three. Older women, you need to teach the younger women how to abide. How to abide in Jesus Christ. I'm talking John 15. They are the branches. He is the vine. I'm talking teach them to have moment by moment, second by second, desperation and dependence upon Christ through his word to supply everything that they need to do what he commands. We all need, you need to teach them how to abide in Jesus Christ. Those are the three A's. And that's where you can begin. And that brings us to the second virtue of womanhood. Second virtue number two, young women must be taught to love their children. Young women must be taught to love their children. And you can totally tell these first two virtues on the list are a package deal, aren't they? Look again at verse four. It says, older women are to be instructing the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. And again, it's ironic, isn't it? That, that this is on the list? Come on, Paul. 
A mom does not need to be taught how to love their children. They already instinctively know how to do that, Paul. Get with the game here. And yet, and, and, and to be sure, there are some aspects of loving kids that are natural and instinctive, and yet the very fact that this is on the list tells us that there is something about loving children that is profoundly supernatural. And it is profoundly supernatural. And the reason for that is because the essence, the ultimate essence of what being a mom is, is making disciples. That's what it is. And, and making disciples that you live with every single day. And what that requires is radical dependence upon Christ for resources that you don't inherently possess. Older women of this church, I just want you to know there is a ministry for you here. And maybe it doesn't have a formal title or a name, but there is a profound ministry in this church for you, and it is the ministry of coming alongside tired mamas in the trenches of motherhood and helping them love their children because whatever that means, it was not automatically downloaded into their souls the day they left the hospital. They have to be taught how to do that. And of course, this raises the question, okay, well, what does it mean to love your children? And it means the exact same thing of what it means to love their husbands. What it means is that moms are to give their kids what is best. And what is best is Jesus Christ himself. And so for a mom to love her kids is to do whatever it takes to help their kids prize Jesus Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. That is love. Again, it is to make tangible for their kids the most beautiful and satisfying person in the universe. That is love. And maybe you're thinking, that sounds great. Sounds really awesome. But what does that actually look like, feel like, sound like in the nitty-gritty trenches of everyday life and motherhood? Well, that's a good question. And obviously, the answer is complex, and it's multifaceted and way too much for any one sermon. But I think at the very least, you can give five practical ways that young women can love their children. Here are five practical ways that young women can, that older women can teach the young women to love their children. Here we go. And these are all basic and simple, not anything you don't already know. But number one, older women teach moms to give their kids order and structure and boundaries. Older women teach the younger women to give their kids order and structure and boundaries. Now, obviously, the home doesn't have to run like a boot camp or like a factory, okay? It doesn't have to run like that. But a cluttered home and a chaotic schedule is good for no one, for the mom or for the kids. Now, of course, obviously, life with little kids is just going to be pretty chaotic and, and putting out fires and dealing with crises all the time. But here's the thing. If that's all a mom is doing, then she will never have enough time to sit down with her kids and get to the gospel, which is what her kids really need anyway. So teach them, teach them, to young moms, to learn how to order and structure the day with clear parameters and structure, to be proactive, not just reactive, to be intentional and not just a slave to the tyranny of the urgent. Number two, older women teach moms to give their kids loving and consistent discipline. 
teach moms to give their kids loving and consistent discipline. And by loving, I mean not in anger. And by consistent, I mean standards and expectations that don't fluctuate and change day after day after day. Because nothing confuses or embitters or exasperates children more than fluctuating and unpredictable standards of discipline that change day after day after day. Number three, older women teach moms to shepherd the hearts of their children, not just modify behavior. Teach moms to shepherd the hearts of their children, not just modify external behavior. In other words, teach moms that one of their main goals in this life is to help their kids see that they are desperate sinners who desperately need a savior. In other words, help them to parent their kids in such a way that they see that they don't only need a change in their behavior, but they, what they really need is a new heart. You need to help your kids see that not only do they do bad things sometimes, but that the bad lives inside of them and that their only hope is the sovereign transforming mercy of God. Number four, older women teach moms to give their kids the gift of letting dad lead when he's home. Teach moms to give their kids the gift of letting dad lead when he's home. In other words, if there is a husband in the home, if there is, the kids need to see that he is the main authority and disciplinarian. Not that he's the boss necessarily, but that he is the servant leader of the home under the authority of the living God. Home health, soul health happens when there is a clear authority structure in the home with active and not passive dads leading in the home. And number five, older women teach moms how to nourish their own souls with the word of God. Teach young moms to nourish their own souls with the word of God because I'll just tell you, the best moms are not necessarily those with the cutest clothes or, or those with, who have are artistic or the most creative or those who have homes that look like they should be on Etsy or, or a magazine, but a mom whose soul is saturated with the word of God. Because a mom whose soul is saturated with the word of God is the one most prepared for the trenches of motherhood. And that's five out of the countless things that could be taught that there's a place to begin. That brings us to the third virtue of womanhood. Number three, young women must be taught to be sober-minded. Young women must be taught to be sober-minded. And if anyone's like, well, women are really sure getting put, you know, they're really, really getting it here today. Well, don't worry, don't worry. Young men, verses six through eight, you're next week. But look what Paul says in verse five. He says, older women are to teach women to love their husbands, to love their children. And here it is, they are to teach them to be sober-minded. I think it's really interesting to me how often Paul talks about being sober-minded in this letter to Titus. Chapter one, verse eight, elders are to be sober-minded. Chapter two, verse two, older men are to be sober-minded. Here, young women are to be sober-minded. Chapter two, verse six, young men are to be sober-minded. 
Chapter 2, verse 12 says that all of us are to live soberly now in the age as we await the arrival of the king. So whatever it means to be sober-minded, it is central to what it looks like to be a Christian. And now this being the third time I've preached on being sober-minded, I think we all know that to be sober-minded means that you are emotionally stable. You are balanced. You are level-headed. You are not easily driven to excessive emotional extremes. To be sober-minded means that you are not erratic or impulsive, nor do you make hasty, foolish decisions out of panic or emotion. Bottom line, to be a sober-minded woman, or anyone else for that matter, means that you have a white-knuckled grip control over your thought lives. In other words, it means, it means that you interpret life not necessarily how you feel in the midst of your circumstances, but you interpret life through the lenses of the God who is sovereign over your circumstances. That's the issue. You see, to be a sober-minded person means that you practice the art of taking every moment in your life and you put it in the grand context of what God is doing in human history. And what God is doing in human history is obtaining a bride of redeemed souls for his son from every nation and your lives are a part of that story. You see, the bottom line issue for Paul here is the first thing that comes into your mind when you are blindsided by the unexpected or the inconvenient. In other words, I think what Paul is advocating here is that older women teach the younger women to be theological seamstresses with their thought lives. Theological seamstresses. Because you know a seamstress, not that I know by experience, but uh, from what I understand, a seamstress, they adjust hems and they fix tears and they mend zippers and they apply buttons and they do alterations on garments, right? Well, a theological seamstress doesn't work with garments, but they work with the very fabric of their thought lives. They adjust and fix and mend and alter and they tie up the loose ends of a thought life with the unbreakable thread of biblical truth. Because again, I I think Paul makes it really clear to Titus, older women are to teach younger women how to rein in their thought lives and to be sober-minded. The question is, how do you do that? How do you teach someone to be sober-minded? I mean, what do you give them? What do you teach them? How, how do you actually help someone know how to do this? Because you know what it's like being fearful and anxious and angry and panicking or whatever it is. How do you connect a thought life that is going in a thousand different directions and you just can't get your thoughts straight? What do you give them? What do you do? Well, here's what you do. You preach to yourself with authority. You see, when you are tempted to lose your mind, what you need to do is you need to ask yourself a bunch of rhetorical questions, the only answer of which is a resounding yes. For instance, soul, does Jesus Christ have all authority in heaven and on earth? Answer, yes. Soul, 
Is Jesus Christ far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come? Answer, yes. Soul, does Jesus Christ uphold the entire universe by the word of his power? Answer, absolutely he does. Soul, is every single moment of my life under the absolute undisputed dominion of Jesus Christ? Answer, absolutely it is. And soul, is this moment the outcome of which seems so uncertain. Is even this a sovereign design from his hand to trust him for the impossible? And will it in the end work out for his glory and for my highest good answer? That is exactly what's going to happen. You see, we need to stop interpreting our life through our circumstances and we need to start interpreting life through the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. Don't you see, to be sober-minded is not a Zen Buddhist poker-faced indifference to the curveballs of life, but rather it is the unshakable conviction that Jesus Christ has absolute supremacy. That's how you become sober-minded. Which brings us to the fourth virtue of womanhood, number four. Young women must be taught to be pure. Young women must be taught to be pure. And by that, Paul means sexual purity and holiness. Look at verse five. Older women are to teach younger women lots of things not the least of which to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sober-minded. And here it is, they are to teach them to be pure. See, one of the things that makes a healthy church a church that changes the world is when older women come alongside younger women and teach them how to wage war against sexual impurity and lust. Which is weird that this is on the list, right? I mean, isn't this a, I mean, shouldn't we be talking about the guys with this issue? I mean, I mean, shouldn't we be talking about modesty instead? And yet the apostle is not so naive as to think that this is a guy's only issue. You see, he knows, he knows that this is an issue of the soul that transcends gender. He knows that the ravenous lion of lust devours its prey, not only from among men, but also from among women. I mean, even, even pornography, which we've always just associated and affiliated with men, apparently increasingly has a growing percentage of female viewers also. And yet the question is, do we know why lust is a big deal? Like why we should make a big deal? I mean, well, why is this issue important? Have we ever thought about that? The question is, what is the Bible's deepest reason for why lust is such a significant issue that we need to put to death? And the answer is this. The deepest reason why lust is so significant and deadly is because the nature of what lust is is that it is inherently idolatrous. It is inherently idolatrous. In other words, me meaning that it is taking something that's not God and it's loving it and worshiping it and trying to be satisfied in it as if it were God. And yet I, I, lust is idolatrous in the worst sense of the term because lust is also inherently enslaving. 
In other words, lust is a monster with an insatiable appetite. The more you feed it, the hungrier it becomes. And it will bleed you and drain you and feed off of you until it consumes you and then it will leave you for dead. And yet the other thing, here's the other thing about sexual lust that makes it so sinister is that its poisonous effects on you are inherently toxic to other people. You see, lust is not just a private issue that affects you only. No, no, you will not be able to stop it, but after a while, it will affect and pollute and contaminate every single relationship you have got, and it will literally cripple your effectiveness for the great commission. I mean, I still remember so poignantly as a young single man sitting at breakfast in a restaurant with one of the elders, and I remember sitting across from him and, and confessing to him my ongoing struggles with lust and, and impurity. And he just looked at me and he goes, um, <laughs> he said, if, if you don't get a handle on this, this will be the end of you. Even at this moment, I know a man right this moment who has been removed from the fellowship of his church. He has lost his job. He has lost his wife, and he has lost his kids because of sexual lust. He just kept pursuing the rabbit hole further and further and further down, seeking for the pleasure that lust promises, and he never found it, and he lost everything. And so older women... One of your ministries is to come alongside younger women and teach them how to wage war against lust with holy violence. And yet, before I give you a few pointers on how to do that, I I have to ask the question. Younger women, older women called to disciple them, and everybody else, how's it going with sexual purity? How's it going? Because we know, we all all know that, that God wants a holy people, right? 1 Peter 1.14, be holy because I am holy. Paul says in Romans 12.1, to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us to be holy and blameless before him. Hebrews 12.14 says to pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Matthew 5, 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Because they shall see God. So the question is, how does one be holy? How does one put lust to death with holy violence? Let's put it this way. How do older women come alongside younger women and teach them how to be pure, to teach them how to be holy? What do they teach them? What do they give them? Here's what you teach them. You ready? Christ breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. That's what you teach them. That's what you teach. Older women, you are to teach the young women that the deepest secret to overcoming all sexual lust and temptation is not ultimately in their willpower or moral resolve, 
but through the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ in their place. Don't you see the scriptures are so clear? There was nothing theoretical about the death of Jesus. Our sin has already been canceled at the cross. And on that basis now, we have the power to put sin to death with the power of Christ. Don't you see, the death of Christ did not merely make our sin forgivable. It made victory over sin inevitable. Don't you see? the best news in the world. All holiness is, is conquering with the power of Christ, the sin which has already been canceled by the death of Christ. I mean, this is exactly what Christ meant in John 8, 34, when he said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And then two verses later, he says, but if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. This is exactly what Paul was talking about in Romans 6. When he says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin would be done away with. That we would no longer be slaves to sin. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, for you are not under sin. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, you are under grace. This is so hope-giving, don't you see? We conquer with the power of Christ the sin which has already been canceled by the death of Christ. Brings us to the fifth virtue of womanhood. The fifth virtue of womanhood, number five, young women must be taught to be workers at home. Young women must be taught to be workers at home. And I, I know, even just saying that out loud, we kind of cringe a little bit. And yet, nevertheless, that is what the text says. Look at verse five. Older women are to teach young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sober-minded, to be pure, and here it is, to be workers at home. And, and we cringe because we just know, we know what so many non-Christians, and unfortunately, some professing Christians would say if they heard this. And, and yet, I assure you, the problem is not, the problem is not that the text says that women are to be workers at home. The problem is in what some people mistakenly think it means to be workers at home. Because what they think it means and what it actually means is not always necessarily the same thing. Because what this text doesn't say, what it does not say, is that women can't have a job outside the home. It's not what the text says. Because she has total freedom, total freedom in unity with her husband's leadership, of course, to pursue additional money-making endeavors and opportunities outside of the home, especially if her kids are older and away at school all day. Go for it. Have at it. It is yours. But only to the degree that she doesn't neglect the home as her primary focus and passion and ministry to which she is to give the best of herself to her husband and to her kids. Because you remember, don't you, what a stay-at-home mom actually is? And you remember, right? I mean, it's not being a, it's not a, um, 
you know, being a maid or the butler or the chauffeur. I mean, it, it's not that. What it is is, and in fact, I think you could say, and even should say, that being a stay-at-home mom is among the most important callings on the face of the planet. Because here's the thing: being a stay-at-home mom is to be a domestic engineer for the glory of Christ in the Great Commission. That's, that's my word for a worker at home, a domestic engineer for the glory of Christ in the Great Commission. And the reason why I call it that is because being a worker at home is just so massive for the Great Commission. The potential for generational impact from the home is just, is just beyond our wildest imaginations. Think about it, a, a worker at home, a mama at home with her kids, I'm, I'm talking especially of little ones who are at home, a mama at home with her kids is a missionary and a theologian. But a missionary and a theologian of the best kind because they actually live with the people they're called to reach and teach. It's incredible. You, you get to feed them and clothe them and preach to them and put band-aids on their owies and you get to shape their entire view of who God is. You get to be the first one to expose them to the Bible. You are the primary theologian of the home. This is incredible to me. And the thing of it is, so many of our heroes in the faith throughout history, they made explicit mention of their moms and the impact that they made upon them. John Newton, slave owner turned pastor, wrote Amazing Grace, maybe you've heard of it. Hudson Taylor, one of the best missionaries in history. J. Gresham Machen, zealous defender of the faith against liberalism. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest thinker America has ever produced. Jim Elliott, missionary and martyr to the Alka Indians. Each one of these people made explicit mention of their moms and credited them as the primary one to make the greatest impact of their lives from Christ. And there are millions of people in history, both men and women, who, who credit their moms as the primary instrument that Christ used to change their lives. Now again, please, please hear me. Uh, this, is, this always feels tricky to preach on stuff like this because every situation is different, right? And, and, and not every situation is the same. And, and am I saying, is anybody saying that working full-time and putting your kids in daycare or at, or at a sitter, is anyone saying that that is inherently sinful? Not at all. Not at all. No one is saying that. No one believes that. Everyone's situation is different. And no one is here to critique you or to condemn you. Because again, you might very well be in a situation beyond your control that forces you to work full-time outside the home. I get that. This church is not here to chuck stones at you, but to assist you in your mission as a mom. We are here to help. But at the same time, I am saying that especially if you have little ones who are less independent and they are not in school yet, I am just saying that that situation is probably not ideal. I am saying as your shepherd, on the basis of this text and others, to please consider this a temporary season in life and would you please at least be open to exploring other opportunities that would free you to be what Paul is describing in the text. And so older women, now to you, I'm, I'm glad to have this conversation 
because um, I'm compelled by the text to, to have this conversation, and yet what I'm asking is, would you please be open to, open to having this conversation with young women in the future? Assisting them, helping them, because according to this text, this is what the living God is calling you to be. Teachers who train the young women to be domestic engineers for the glory of Christ in the Great Commission. And that brings us to number six. The sixth virtue of womanhood, number six, young women must be taught to be glad-heartedly benevolent. Young women must be taught to be glad-heartedly benevolent, which is a real mouthful, I understand, but that's actually exactly what Paul means when he tells the older women to teach the younger women to be kind. Look at the text, look at verse five. Older women are to teach young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sober-minded, pure, workers at home, and, and they are to teach them to be kind. Whereas I'm going to argue, teach them to be glad-heartedly benevolent. Benevolent. Because here's the thing about that Greek word, which most of your versions translate as kind. There's no one single English word that, that corresponds exactly to its meaning, but what you can do, what you can do is you could take a couple English words and squish them together, and then you get what Paul is after. And what he's after is one who benevolently or one who generously and joyfully does what is beneficial and useful to others. And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, that he would talk about glad-hearted generosity in service to others. It's, it, it makes sense that he would talk about that right after being a worker at home, right? And it makes perfect sense because the reason is to be a worker at home, let's just face it, can oftentimes be grueling and thankless, right? You see, what Paul wants the older women to do is to come alongside younger women and not just help them grind through the tasks of motherhood with, with clenched fist and grit teeth, but rather older women are to come alongside the younger women and how to do that with an unconquerable joy. That is what he is after. Because here's the thing, moms, it, you know, being motherhood is, is not a cleaning, service, daycare, restaurant for which they're paid for services rendered. Right? Which, they can, which they can operate with indifference toward their clients. This is their family. This is their life. This is their ministry. And yet moms in the home, day after day after day after day, doing what they're called to do, can at times feel lonely, disconnected, burnt out, unsupported, they're constantly fatigued and weary. They, they hardly ever get a break. And after a while, their daily tasks, tasks in the home can feel arbitrary and tedious and meaningless and pointless. And to older women, that is your opportunity to pounce. That is your opportunity to disciple. That is your opportunity to come alongside them and mentor them and help them see the great commission significance in all that they're doing. That is a profound ministry. And so mom is in the home. I just want to ask you, how are you doing right now? Do you feel discouraged? Do you feel overwhelmed? Do you feel disconnected? Do you feel, feel lonely? I mean, what do you do to sustain your joy? What, what do you hold on to to help you have glad-hearted benevolence in the grime and trenches of motherhood? And older women, the question for you is, what would you give them? 
But what can you give the younger women, the young moms at home to have glad-hearted, joyful sacrifice and benevolence as they, as they labor in the trenches of, of life and motherhood? What can you give them? Well, for starters, and we'll end with this, but you can give them five fresh air reminders. Five fresh air reminders to sustain their joy in the home. Reminder number one, older women, remind the younger women that their identity is in Christ and not ultimately what their idea of a wife and mother is. Help them to see that what truly ultimately defines them is all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished and, and not, not what the world thinks or what, what Etsy thinks or what Facebook or what their own minds think the ideal wife and mother is. Help them look to Christ. Reminder number two, fresh air reminder number two, remind moms constantly of the justification accomplished by Christ. And, and you remember what justification is, right? Justification by faith means that we have the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ credited to our bankrupt spiritual bank account so that the Father sees us with the perfect righteousness of Christ and on that basis accepts us as sons and daughters of the living God. And what this does is this gives us hope in the face of our failures. This gives us humility in the face of our accomplishments. Because now, even now, what defines us, what makes us right before God is not our things that we achieve, but the righteousness of Christ. Reminder number three, fresh air reminder number three. Older women, you need to remind the younger women of the reward they will receive from Christ for everything that they do. They need to hear that they will receive a reward from Christ for all of their unseen and seemingly insignificant labors. It is not insignificant to Jesus Christ. They need to know that Christ will personally reward them for every task of motherhood and that Christ himself is the reward. Fresh air reminder number four. Older women remind the younger women that every mundane task of motherhood is a great commission task. That nothing is insignificant. Nothing is irrelevant. I mean, think about it. Wars are fought one battle at a time. Battles are fought one bullet at a time. And in the exact same way, the great commission is advanced by moms in the home one hug at a time one changed diaper at a time, one washed dish at a time, one story read at a time, one, one uh, you know, whatever it is at a time, nothing is irrelevant, nothing is insignificant. It all matters and it all connects to the Great Commission. Fresh air reminder number five. Older women, remind the young moms that you disciple that the greatest and in fact the only guard against feelings of burnout and discouragement are to remember that apart from Christ, you can do nothing. You see, to succeed in the Christian life and to live a radical, satisfying life that puts Christ on display, get this, you must master the virtue of desperation. 
You have to come to grips with your own spiritual bankruptcy. The secret to motherhood. Here it is. The secret to motherhood or the entirety of the Christian life for that matter is to remember to despair in your worthless resources to live the Christian life and to cast yourself upon Christ for his endless ones. And so that's six. Six out of seven virtues that older women are to teach the younger so that the word of God will be exalted and displayed. And you can tell, you can tell there's one missing. There's one more on the list. And to be totally honest, it's so significant. I really think it deserves its own sermon. So in two weeks from now, I'm going to teach, preach an entire sermon of what it means for wives to submit to their husbands. What it means, why it matters, why it's beautiful and glorious, and why it helps advance even the Great Commission itself. So that'll be in two weeks. And so let me close with this. Older women and younger women, you, you, you got to know, God did not have to do male and female. But he did. He did do that. And the reason he did is because man and woman, male and female, masculinity and femininity, with all of their differences and similarities, are God's gift to the world to put his multifaceted glory on display. You need men doing what God made them to do. You need women doing what God made them to do. Because the two of them together are a harmony of grace, making different but equally melodious contributions to the masterpiece of redemption. It is good to be man. It is good to be woman. And it is great to have them both. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are a needy people. We're always needy, Lord. We are spiritual cripples and, and beggars of grace. And we just come to you, Lord, because we don't have it within ourselves to do anything that your word commands us to do. And so I pray that we would be a congregation of abiders, a congregation of people who abide in you, Christ a congregation of people who, who look to you to, to supply all that they need to do what you command. And so, Lord, we confess to you even now, O oh Lord, that we are wearied. We are beyond our means, O oh Lord. We are in over our heads in this thing called the Christian life because the Christian life is not difficult. It is impossible. We can't do it without your grace. And so give us that grace, we pray. And Lord, we just want to live lives that count for eternity. Pray that we would. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who does not truly know you, they are not reconciled to you, Christ. They are still in their sins and, and a slave to their iniquity and trapped in, in the slave market of darkness and to the evil one, Lord. I pray that you would open their eyes even at this moment to flee from their sin and to flee for refuge in you because Christ, the only refuge from your wrath is yourself. So I pray that they would flee to you, that they would flee to your death in the place of sinners like them, and you would save them. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this church. Grateful for them, Lord. I'm not perfect. They're not perfect. We're all weak. And yet, Lord, we trust you to make us a church, trusting you and treasuring you all for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.